The Science Inside Podcast. This is The Science Inside. Hello and welcome. This is The Science Inside where we bring you the latest news stories and events happening in the world of science and technology. I am your host Bridget Libere. In this week's show, we discuss South Africa putting its million dollar signature on the international treaty establishing the Square Kilometer Array Observatory as an intergovernmental organization which is tasked with building and operating the world's most powerful radio astronomy telescope. Now, the Minister of Science and Technology, Mamuluko Kubai Ngubani, signed the convention establishing the Square Kilometer Array Observatory on behalf of the South African government in Italy in recent weeks. The signing ceremony was presided over by Italy's Minister of Education, Marco Bassetti, and it was also witnessed by ministers and other high-level representatives of countries participating in the SKA project. Now, several countries, which include South Africa, Australia, China, Italy, Netherlands, and the United Kingdom, they signed the treaty in this recent week, concluding four years of negotiations by government representatives and international lawyers, kicking off the legislative process in each of these uh, mentioned countries. India and Sweden also took part in the multilateral negotiations. They are left with one year to sign this treaty, but nine countries already form the founding members of the new intergovernmental organization. And this treaty establishes the SKAO as only the second intergovernmental organization dedicated to astronomy in the world after the European Southern Observatory, and this will ensure strong governance of the SKA project. On our social media, we are Facebook as The Science Inside. Our WhatsApp line is 084-078-4912. You can also tweet us at VowFM, hashtag Science Inside. Up next, we have our news. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on The Science Inside. In your newsmaking headlines this week, new research targets anti-vaccination comments on Facebook and genetic research has a wide bias and it may be hurting everyone's health. Good evening, I'm Masibulele Luniga with your Science Inside News. Over the years, there have been many speculations and myths about vaccinations, even making the inception of the anti-vaccination movement uh, in 1963. Today, with the social media and lots of fake news, there have been videos circulated on Facebook. A new study published in the journal Vaccine reports that anti-vaccination content on Facebook extends beyond a thoroughly debunked myth that vaccines cause autism. The team of researchers found four flavors of anti-vaccine misinformation that may discourage parents from vaccinating their children. The findings suggest that there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to curbing the spread of vaccine hesitancy, according to the study's senior author Brian Primack, a professor at the University of Pittsburgh. Instead, understanding why parents are reluctant to vaccinate their children will be critical in fighting vaccine-preventable diseases like measles, which continues to spread through pockets of unvaccinated people across the countries across different countries the recent outbreaks have prom- 
have prompted a closer look at the proliferation of anti-vaccine misinformation on social media platforms, including Facebook. Historically, anti-vaccination rhetoric has focused has focused rather on misplaced fears that autism, after a fraudulent study by disgraced researcher Andrew Wakefield, claimed there was a link. The study has since been retracted, and studies continue to report no such link. Today's study uh, reports that misinformation about vaccines on Facebook appears to have multiplied beyond fears of autism to include four main themes, mistrust of science and government agencies, fear of safety risks, belief in conspiracy theories, and support of alternative disease treatments. The researchers also found that the same stories and videos from anti-vaccination groups tend to recirculate among people who oppose vaccines. The idea for the study started with a rush of anti-vaccination comments on a 90-second informal uh, informational video about the human uh, papillomavirus HPV vaccine. A month after the Kids Plus a Pediatrics Clinic in Pittsburgh posted the video on social media, distinctly anti-vaccination comments, as the researchers called them, uh, began flooding in. These included threatening or extremist comments uh, along the lines of, you'll burn in hell for killing babies after about eight days. The tide of anti-vax sentiment uh, petted out. Uh, a team of researchers led by Beth Hoffman, a research assistant at the University of Pittsburgh Center for Research on Media, Technology and Health, wanted to understand who the people posting these comments were and what was driving them. Not everyone concerned about vaccines has the same concerns, Hoffman says. Understanding the range of those concerns could help health professionals and scientists uh, reach people who are hesitant or afraid of vaccines. Hoffman wanted to know, how can we create pro-vaccine messages that resonate with these four different types of beliefs? After the University of Pittsburgh approved the team's approach, Hoffman and her colleagues poured over the comments posted during the eight-day span uh, there were distinctly anti-vaccination comments from nearly 800 different profiles, so the team picked a random sample of 197 to study in depth. They scoured their profiles for information about age, gender, pronouns, uh, political affiliation, whether the posters were parents. Uh, they looked through two years of publicly available posts and information. If a post included a video, Hoffman and her colleagues watched it, uh, and if it linked to to a website, they checked it out. In our second story, modern humans originated on the continent of Africa more than 300,000 years ago, and subsequent generations migrated across the land with groups uh, intermarrying or splitting apart. Sometime around 80,000 years ago, a small number of descendants left the continent and radiated around the globe, taking with them just a subset of the genes and genetic variation that their ancestors had developed. Yet, according to a new 
new research article in Cell titled The Missing Diversity in Human Genetic Studies. Genetic studies are now dominated by that subset. According to the article, it has been well documented that genetic studies of human disease, especially large-scale ones, have not captured the level of diversity that exists globally as they are predominantly based on the populations of European ancestry. The underrepresentation of ethnically diverse populations impedes our ability to fully understand the genetic architecture of human disease and exacerbates health inequalities. Sarah Tishkoff, study co-author and a human geneticist at the University of Pennsylvania, says if we don't include ethnically diverse populations, we are potentially going to be exacerbating health inequalities. As of last year, 78% of the people included in the most prominent form of genomic research are genome-wide association studies were of European ancestry. But worldwide, Europeans and their descendants make up just 12% of the population. According to the researchers, heavily biased genetic databases could and do lead to scientists and doctors uh, to diagnose conditions uh, or prescribe treatments that might be relevant to people with European genes, but not for people from other racial backgrounds. Any two humans in the world share about 99.9% of their DNA with one another, but that 0.1% of variation is incredibly important. That variation can be just single replacements here and there in the four-letter code of a person's genetic material and can make the difference between a gene that works to encode healthy proteins and a gene that fails and makes a person sick. Genetics interact with other factors like diet, activity and access to resources, all of which determine a person's health. And health treatments that don't take the variations of genetically diverse populations into account can cause problems. Just a few tiny changes in the genetic code can have large effects on the effectiveness of a drug like the blood thinner or warfarin and therefore the amount of medication that will be effective and safe for a patient. According to physician and epidemiologist at the University of California, San Francisco, not involved in the in the paper, the lack of genetic diversity is a social injustice and a missed scientific opportunity. In his own research, uh, Bouchard works on asthma, the most common medical condition for children, and similar disparities in studies of Americans in Puerto Rico. Biased genetic databases are also missing out on research into human genetic variation that could actually benefit everyone, uh, the study also finds. Recapping your top stories this hour, new research puts an end to anti-vaccination propaganda on social media platforms and well-documented genetic studies of human disease show a significant level of racial bias as studies are predominantly based on populations of European ancestry, which is hurting the common health of people of different ethnic groups.
Wow, Masibulele, I'm really impressed by the uh, story on, on anti-vaccination propaganda that is spread on social media. I mean, it is really impressive that they're really looking into this because vaccines are really important. And as much as people may say that they are hurting their children, but a lot of vaccines have saved a lot of people's lives. I mean, with polio as well, a lot of children's lives have been saved. And, you know, they were able to use the members of their bodies properly because they were vaccinated. Fully agree with that, Bridget. And if you look at some of the things that are speculated by people and some of the claims they work that, you know, as a result of vaccines, it's quite shocking when you look at some of those things. Um, And not to completely argue that they are safe entirely, but the cases are not as common as speculated uh, a lot of times in social media and these propaganda videos. In fact, according to the Medium Corporation, the rate of injuries associated with vaccines is roughly one serious problem for every million vaccinations given. Yeah, and this topic is debatable. As I had mentioned earlier that some parents may say vaccination is good, some parents may say it's no. But I mean, I do agree that parents should still remain uh, vigilant as to what kind of vaccination is being given to their kids. And you may never know. Maybe you may fall into that 1% threshold, but 1% as opposed to the 99%, I mean, really. Yeah, yeah, you're actually right. I mean, that 1% actually is pretty still important. I guess it's uh, it's exactly a similar thing with uh, our second story where, uh, you know, an even smaller percentage um, uh, really inspired these researchers to go out uh, and to question the biases present in many of today's uh, genetic studies and given that any two human beings if you think about it in the world share about 99.9 percent of their dna with another uh, person that is 0.1 percent of variation is so important that it it could cause a lot of damage if 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 if, uh, genetics uh, related medicine is not properly uh, prescribed yeah, and I'm really glad that you brought this topic up as well because I came across an article that also spoke of when dealing with cancer where the black majority of population has been left out because studies are based on people of European descent. But for those that may not know this, this is a process where scientists performing the research influences the results. And in order to portray, uh, portray a certain outcome, some bias is research that arises from experimental error and failure to take into account all of the possible variables. Yes, indeed. I fully agree. And I actually like the story because it actually goes back to the first historical and scientifically proven spread of human civilization and basically gives us an idea of how important it is to basically be objective in science and to especially uh, discuss this area of genetics very importantly. Yeah, and maybe you should also ask or look at the question of racial inequalities in the amount of research that uh, the scientists are are doing since all communities are different and obviously even the genetic makeup of the various communities are different just as much as our skin color is different and i actually think you onto something because really if you think of how much uh, there's a lot of inequality in fact most of the researches researches that are being produced are produced for as uh, they certain communities and therefore possess certain racial uh, inequalities but we need to look at the ratio of different races represented by the researchers uh, 
behind the researchers themselves and um, the re- there's so many biases now that I think of it in, in even the technology that is being produced with the artificial intelligence so if we intend to make it for everyone we need to really consider all the people in the world and in all their diversity. And that was all for this week, folks. This week's news was sourced from The Verge and PBS. Next up, we look at a story where South Africa has put its signature on the international treaty establishing the Square Kilometre Array Observatory as an intergovernmental organisation tasked with building and operating the world's most powerful radio astronomy telescope. Don't go nowhere. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Welcome back. I am Bridget Libere and you are still on The Science Inside. We go now into our main story that is making waves in the science circles in South Africa and it is a story about the Department of Science and Technology where they have signed a historic treaty establishing the country as one of the founding members of what is to be the world's biggest and most advanced radio telescope. Our producer Masibulele Lunika compiled this report. The Minister of the Department of Science and Technology, Minister Mamoloko Kubayengubane, said South Africa's signature on the establishment of the Square Kilometre Array Observatory, SKO in short, as an intergovernmental legal entity to oversee the construction and operation phases of the SKA project is a crucial milestone and one that needs to be celebrated. What makes this particularly unique, you may ask? According to the minister, it is because it is a large-scale science project and for the first time, Africa, Asia, Australia and Europe have committed to an intergovernmental collaboration where all concerned parties are equal partners, therefore representing the dawn of a new era for global science governance. The Rome Convention Treaty is in recognition of Italy's role in the negotiation process. It will come into force once it has been ratified by the legislatures of five signatory countries, including all three SKA hosts, South Africa's Department of Science and Technology Director for SKA, Dagalani Nemaungani, spoke to us about the treaty and what this project would mean for the country. This convention that was signed in Rome by uh, countries that we call the founding members of the SKA was a decision to establish basically an intergovernmental treaty organization that will become the governing structure for the construction and the operations of the square kilometer array uh, telescope. So because the uh, building of the square kilometer array radio telescope, which will become the largest radio telescope uh, in the world, uh, co-hosted in South Africa and Australia with headquarters uh, in the UK because of the scale and the complexity and the uh, significant budgets that are involved in the project. This gov- the governments of these countries uh, decided to establish a very robust and uh, solid governance structure, uh, you know, that will provide um, assurance uh, that will have certainty in terms of the budgets. 
So because then you will be able to, each, each government will be able to go back to their national treasury and to their parliament, uh, basically to ratify or to agree, uh, you know, to the establishment of a treaty. You know, um, uh, treaty organizations uh, <clears throat> is really in the world what you will call organizations like, the, let's say, the UN, for instance, the United Nations and many other international organizations which are known as treaty organizations are organizations that um, um, are recognized uh, worldwide to perform certain duties and uh, the member countries of those uh, treaty organizations uh, have to contribute budgets uh, so that uh, that body can continue to uh, meet its mandate. So you are almost establishing a very high-level, highly recognized uh, structure because then you want it to be known and uh, you want it also to be able to enjoy uh, certain privileges and uh, certain access to resources. In respect to the telescope's construction and ownership, uh, Nemongani says several countries have signed the treaty with South Africa being one of the founding members, but others will be given an opportunity to get involved as well. Basically, you will have different levels of participation. So the founding members, which are the seven countries that have signed in Rome, including Sweden and India, which are going to f- sign within a year from now. So they were not able to sign, but uh, they were part of these negotiations to become the, uh, part of the nine countries that we will, will define as the founding members. So the founding members are basically the main members which will, who will contribute the budget uh, as agreed. So then after the founding members, then you'll have the second level, which will be called the associate members. So the associate members will will also contribute, let's say, a smaller percentage of the budget, whatever they agree as to what those percentages are. So so which means they they will contribute a, a certain amount, but they may not necessarily maybe be eligible for 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 the significant contracts that come out of this, but they will be let's say entitled to certain accesses maybe to the telescope and so on. He elaborates on what were some of the reasons why other countries were unable to sign this treaty. Sometimes it's all about the, the, the budgets that you are able to commit, but also sometimes about the size of your community mm. that is involved in this sector. This is going to be the biggest uh, uh, radio telescope. Uh, actually, you know, we can also argue that it is going to become the, the largest science facility on the planet Earth because of the sheer size of, 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 of the telescope that will been in three continents with collaboration with many countries and the kind of budgets, but also the kind of advancement in terms of engineering and also computing power.
We argue that it was probably going to be the largest uh, science project of the 21st century. According to Nemongani, the telescope will make for huge benefits for scientific interstellar research and enable groundbreaking discoveries about the universe, as well as encourage South African youth to pursue science-related studies. If you're building a science facility, uh, the first and the foremost thing is that it must be able to do world-class science. In other words, it must give us the kind of science that will revolutionize our understanding of the universe. So in other words, we are expecting uh, groundbreaking discoveries that will significantly add better uh, revelations and knowledge to the physics of the universe and also to be able to test some of the theories like the Albert Einstein in very extreme environments, you know, uh, and, and understand a lot of things about black holes and, 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 and neutron stars and so on. And that is why it is being built to become the most advanced, the most sensitive and the largest because we want the science to be taken in astronomy and astrophysics to be taken to the next high level. We want to generate a lot of uh, discoveries uh, and potentially uh, quite a few uh, Nobel Prizes. From South Africa, we are hoping that uh, you know our growing community in this area, we can also become a leading nation in mm. terms of generating new knowledge and, and participating in that kind of science, which will be cool, you know, uh, cutting mm. edge stuff, you know. So that is the first thing, you know, and then it will also uh, encourage our youngsters uh, to go more into this field, but also to know that if they graduate in a field like this, they will be able to do great science without having to go overseas. Uh, but they can do it here in South Africa and, and, and publish and do, because they'll have access, better access to the telescope in terms of doing the science and so on. According to the science minister, international cooperation in science plays a crucial role in fostering international relations and solidarity in bolstering commitment to multilateralism, which will assist the the international society in addressing global challenges such as poverty, inequality and climate change. Nemangani adds that South African SMEs also stand to benefit from securing big contracts which will hopefully create more jobs and help boost the country's economy. Uh, When contracts are issued Mm. for the construction of the telescopes, in other words, uh, the companies in those countries and the engineers in those countries are the ones who will have the first preference when the contracts are awarded because they have made significant budget contributions. When you are building a mega science project involving such big budgets, it means there also has has to be uh, what we call financial returns, investment returns the country. So therefore, as South Africa, we are hoping that uh, our companies uh, will get, you know, uh, contracts and be part of consortiums that will be, uh, you know, so in other words, we should be able to also create jobs uh, locally, uh, this project will also be able to advance our industry in this area 
in terms of the various components that the telescopes will need. I mean, there are other areas where obviously South Africa has to take a lead, like going to be a lot of... The, the first part of this uh, next phase will be a lot of infrastructure development. In other words, we have to build more roads, mm-hmm. uh, build more power lines, uh, roll, more, roll out more fiber cable, have more buildings, security, and so on. So those things have to happen in South Africa in the Northern Cape. So, and it's good that in South Africa we have good companies. So in other words, those companies will benefit. In South Africa, we're building what we call the mid to high frequency antennas. Mm-hmm. So, so we are going to be adding another 133 antennas uh, to the 64 that we already have. And this will be spreading over hundreds of kilometers in a spiral configuration from the core you know, up to, I think, about 80 kilometers from the baseline. So there's going to be a lot of infrastructure. So South Africa is taking, obviously, a lead. Last month, SKA's team of engineers from South Africa and Australia finalized the critical designs of all components essential for the completion of this construction. Over the past five years, more than 1,000 engineers and scientists from 20 countries were involved in the designing of the SKA. I asked Namaungani about the scale of the project and what it takes to build a telescope of this magnitude and significance the next phase because you know we're building this project in phases because of the scale of the project and of course the availability of budget the next scale is going to be 700 million euros i think that equates to about 11.5 billion rands Construction of the first phase of the SKA is expected to start in 2021. Three prototype uh, dishes are being built as part of the SKA critical design review, the final stage of the design work before construction begins. One of these prototypes is currently being assembled at South Africa's SKA site in Northern Cape, which is also home to the 64-dish Meerkat telescope. I'm Masibulele Lunika. Remember, you can find us on Facebook as The Science Inside. And you can also tweet us at VowFM, hashtag Science Inside. Stay listening. This is The Science Inside. It's time for Unscience, where we look at the strangest side of research and we take a peek at what scientists spend a lot of their time, money and effort on. And today's Unscience was produced by Masibulele Lunika. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. So do you believe life goes beyond the earth? Uh, We know and see. I mean, whether it's further out in space in different dimensions or even after death, uh, if you're religious, uh, or maybe you, you had a past life as a certain animal, do you believe in any of those things? Well, I do believe that the human body does die off, but the spirit actually just lives forever. That's what I believe. Uh, interesting and a lot of people around the world uh, have many theories suggesting that life doesn't just end uh, here on earth as we know and personally it makes a sense to me given that uh, the creation of life and evolution itself when it's explained is, is, is so complicated it's so incredible that we can't couldn't just be the only anomaly uh, in such a vast and deep complex uh, universe yeah sure I, I do agree that there are other entities out there. I mean, 
the famous question of all is who created the world the yeah. world as it stands and then you know we all have our own answers but then you'd even ask yourself but who created the person who created, who created that world exactly yeah <laughs> well, i can tell you one thing science is fast approaching the, the answers to these questions as you know, what the new ska satellite also hopes to uh, see is, is if there's any extraterrestrial life out there and this also is, is what the 500 meter aperture spherical telescope or fast in short uh, is currently doing in china as the world's largest radio telescope at the moment but unlike alien life now imagine a different a separate reality uh, existing simultaneously with ours that's what scientists have recently discovered what do you mean? Is it like a parallel universe that exists? Spot on. But in quantum physics, it's less like the science fiction movies that we've seen. Uh, the decades-old theoretical physics question about dueling realities has finally been answered through a tricky thought experiment which proposed that two individuals observing the same photon could arrive at different conclusions about the photon state and yet both of those of their observations would be correct. For the first time, scientists have replicated conditions described in the thought experiment. Uh, their results published last month in the preprint journal titled Experimental Rejection of Observer Independence in the Quantum World confirmed that even when observers described different states in the same photon, the two conflicting realities could both be true. Wow, that is really interesting. But why would you tell me more about this experiment? Yep, so the, this idea was the brainchild of Alfred Wigner, uh, winner of, of the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1963. In 1961, Wigner had introduced a thought experiment that became known as the Wigner's Friend. It begins with a photon, a particle of light, when an observer in an isolated laboratory measures the photon, they find that the particle's uh, polarization the particle's polarization, uh, the axis on which it spins, is either vertical or horizontal. However, before the photon is measured, the photon displays both polarizations at once. As indicated by the laws of quantum mechanics, it exists in a superposition of two possible states. Once the person in the lab measures the photon, the particle assumes a fixed polarization, but for someone outside that closed laboratory who doesn't know the results of the measurements, the unmeasured photon is still in the same uh, state of superposition. That outsider's observation, uh, their reality, uh, therefore diverges from the reality of the person in the lab who measured the photon. Yet neither of those conflicting observations is thought to be wrong according to quantum mechanics. Scientists' brains are really, they're just something else. They are constantly thinking about different ways of discovering things. And the thought experiment was quite imaginative, I really have to say. But if it was conceptualized so long ago, why such a delay to test the theory out, especially if it is really that good? My answer is simple. Science and technology also evolves with time. The study's co-author Martin Ringbauer 
a, a postdoctoral researcher with the Department of Experimental Physics at the University of Innsbruck in Austria, agrees that for decades, Wigner's mind-bending proposal was just an interesting thought experiment, but in recent years, important advances in physics finally enabled experts to put Wigner's uh, proposal to the test. Ringbauer and his colleagues tested Wigner's original idea with even more rigorous experiment which doubled the scenario. They designated two laboratories where the experiments would take place and uh, introduced two pairs of entangled photons, uh, meaning that their fates were linked uh, so that knowing the state of one automatically tells you the state of the other. That is really amazing. I mean, it's quite thought-inspiring. It is really quite interesting when modern sciences find ways to challenge old concepts of science. And it really gives the impression that there is so much more to discover. And we are just, what can I say? This is just the tip of the iceberg, really. (laughs) But there's so much more to the surface that we haven't unraveled yet. I fully agree. And because really uh, there's just so much out there to discover, imagine just how much of our planet still don't even understand. Uh, There are just new discoveries every day. On that note, I will say cheers with unscience. This unscience this week was sourced from live science. It's unusual, unlikely unscience. And next up in our second story, we take a glance at a very interesting story of how food specialists are fixing people's foot ailments by producing footwear that actually heals and corrects the foot that has an abnormality in it. So stay tuned. We tackle the subject after the break. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. Stay curious, stay informed, stay on the Science Inside. I'm warm, welcome to you. This is the Science Inside and earlier on we heard about South Africa's involvement in the new SKAO treaty and what it will mean for all South Africans. But we also heard about the benefits of this new telescope and uh, what kind of investment has been pumped up into this project to make it a reality. But up next, we'll also look at a story by our producer, Masibulele Lunika, where he spoke to an orthopedic from the Center of Sports Medicine and Orthopedics, Professor Gavin O'Brien. Let's get into it. On our second story this week, we look at a rather different subject, following up on a topic that we covered in the previous weeks around foot disorders, where we unraveled the case of club foot treatment. Uh, For those that missed it, we discussed the recent deployment of orthopedic surgeons from Gauteng to Limpopo by the Gauteng Health Department to treat over 200 babies suffering from the condition. The initiative was meant to help advance some medical skills to deal with the prevalent cases of clubfoot given that there is a shortage in hospitals around the country. In that light, we decided to also explore other foot disorders uh, that can be associated with our choices in footwear. This is an important subject because it affects all of us because all of us wear shoes but not all of us actually or necessarily pay attention to how those shoes are designed and how that can impact our health. 
We spoke to Dr. Gavin O'Brien from the Center for Sports Medicine and Orthopedics in Rosebank, who specializes in orthopedics with special interest in arthroscopic surgery of the ankle, corrective foot surgery. And he explained what some of the common health implications could be and what in our shoes can trigger them, particularly if you are in the sporting field. The different conditions where we have these sort of more hereditary things, um, and then you have the injuries. So from a sporting point of view, I mean, I see a lot of the injuries. Um, and obviously by far the most common is the uh, <clears throat> ligament injuries that you get around the ankle. Um, those are by far and away the most common. And they range from mild to moderate to severe, um, etc. Um, and then other injuries are some snapped Achilles tendons, um, in our runners and, and very busy sportsmen, um, we get over things that we call overuse injuries, <clears throat> which are stress fractures of various bones in the foot. Again, um, tendon injuries from the Achilles tendon and the peroneal tendons, etc. And those all come from sort of overuse injuries. The most sort of common um, sort of congenital things, things that you were born with and then will slowly develop over time, range again from, I suppose, club feet to flat feet, high arched feet, <coughs> um, things like bunions are very, very common. And those are affected by shoes. Um, they're not caused by shoe wear. Um, those are, they're made symptomatic by wearing very tight shoes, very high heels. Um, those make the bunion sore, um, but uh, the, the shoes actually don't cause them. Men and women get them, but obviously women complain about them far more than we do um, because we only wear more sensible type shoes. And then there's old age related things, your arthritis, wear and tear, um, disorders, again, that can affect all the joints of the foot, ranging from the ankle uh, through to your midfoot um, and then down into the toes, the, the, uh, all the toe joints, etc., can be affected by arthritis. You get the hereditary forms of arthritis, <coughs> which are your sort of autoimmune diseases, those that's associated with um, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, SLE, um, psoriasis, etc. Um, those are more sort of treated by uh, your rheumatologist, and we treat the condition mostly nowadays medically. Um, and as a surgeon, we'll intervene if the deformity that is caused by the arthritis is very severe. Um, and it's our job to sort of straighten out severely deformed joints and, and alleviate any pain um, that's not being controlled by the medication. Dr. O'Brien elaborates more on how often these cases are actually related to the footwear that we choose. One of conditions, mostly your, I mean, your some stress factors that we see that I mentioned, sort of your overuse injuries can either be caused from, so say, running too much as everyone's building up and getting ready for comrades now. A lot of the runners are now increasing their mileage and trying to run them qualifying marathons and run an ultra. So it's either um, too much, and then we do see those that are, trying to go too fast. And I think that's where shoe wear plays a, a role, um, especially those runners that, that are going towards minimalistic shoes uh, where the, the cushioning is, is, is less, the support is less. <clears throat> those definitely sort of predispose you to picking up injuries like fractures, ligament tears, 
um, tendon issues. There's no doubt that uh, very fashionable shoes um, and, and very high heels uh, can definitely sort of hurt the feet. But that ranges, um, you know, again, from bunions that are symptomatic, not caused by the shoe, but they'll definitely be brought on, to Achilles problems, um, a thing we call pump bumps, which are lumps on the back of your heel that are often caused by too much friction between your heel and the back of a very hard shoe. Um, the plantar fasciitis is very, very common. Um, again, we're not sure what the real cause is. We know it's a, very, it's a middle-aged disease, um, and we think it may be related to sometimes a shoe wear. Um, but again, we see it in so many people with varying sort of causes that we actually don't really know what the ultimate cause of it. With a clear indication that shoes do actually have quite a role to play in causing some of these disorders, Dr. O'Brien goes into further detail about what we can do for treatment and what we can also then do proactively to prevent uh, some of them and which kind of shoes are then better for our health. I mean, if you are um, finding that you do are picking up aches and pains in your feet um, and you think it may be related to shoes, either work shoes, running shoes or whatever. Um, the obvious advice is to sort of go for the more sort of medicated line of shoes um, that are made with good leather and are wider and softer, etc. Like your green cross, your Birkenstock, those type of things. Yeah. Um, if you're a runner, make sure you're wearing a good running shoe from a reputable brand and obviously get sort of fitted and checked out by uh, the guys at, say, the sweatshop or something like that. You know, they'll have a look at your pattern and see. The other very important thing to do is if you do think you've got sort of foot issues and all that is probably to go to your local podiatrist um, and that's someone who's different to a foot surgeon, but they look at the feet and <clears throat> measure the feet and put them on um, pressure pads and everything. And they will make an orthotic for you and that goes into your shoe and replaces the existing sole of the shoe. Um, and that'll give you some support in the arch if you need it or take some pressure off of the <clears throat> toes or metatarsals that may be collapsed causing pressure, they can support your heel if your heel is sort of twisting in or out. Um, and that's better than sort of getting any form of shoe, you know, that's to get an orthotic. Um, and there are some sort of commercially available ones that you can get at the various pharmacies like Biscam or Clicks, um, but they're not as substantial or as good as the ones that are obviously custom made for you. Recently, researchers at the Purdue University uh, have created a customizable insole uh, to treat diabetic foot ulcers. This was interesting because it helps alleviate the burden of having to see a foot specialist and the new device can help people treat diabetic foot ulcers at their own comfort. Given the scale of technology that exists today, we then wonder if there haven't yet been any other innovative advancements in shoe sciences to help achieve this. I mean, absolutely. Those type of things have been around for a while. Um, you know, the ones that, um, again, those would be made sort of by the, the, the um, prosthetist. Um, and again, most of the diabetic problems we see are purely a result of pressure. Something's gone wrong in the foot and a bone is pushing somewhere and then that causes an ulcer and that ulcer is 
takes a very long time to heal. Um, and sort of part of the healing is to un- to alleviate that pressure. Um, so you'd get something made for the foot, for the shoe, like an orthotic that even if it's just simply a matter of cutting a hole in the sole to alleviate a pressure point, and that will allow that sort of ulcer to heal. And there are various other modalities, <clears throat> but sort of getting to the wound problem of sort of oxygenating and treating infection, all those type of things um, that are available. In terms of the medical skills to treat these disorders locally, Dr. O'Brien explains what the situation is in terms of specialists and how accessible the treatment is in parts of the country. In Johannesburg, Pretoria and Cape Town, there's enough of us. Some of the other areas, even some of the other bigger towns like um, Durban, Port Elizabeth, East London, etc. It's very rare to find an orthopedic surgeon who has super specialized in treating foot conditions. So to answer your question, there's probably not enough, definitely not enough out in the rural areas. Um, We are sort of concentrated in the bigger centers and we are sort of way fewer um, foot specialists uh, if you compare us to the number of hip surgeons, knee surgeons, etc. So there's probably not enough of us, but if you're fortunate and happy to have a problem in Johannesburg or Pretoria, you'll be able to get hold of one of us fairly easily. Lastly, the doctor shared some critical advice that can help us avoid any of these shoe-related disorders and to avoid having to go to seek medical help. Well, obviously, to try and make sure the shoes you're wearing are the right size and that I would advise to go for sort of broader shoes um, as opposed to very narrow at the toes. The material that the shoe's made of should be sort of soft, even if it's leather. Um, you know, you don't want the hard sort of plastic um, type thing because that causes blisters and skin irritation, etc. Um, and then, obviously, you know, shoes are a very fashionable item. Um, so sometimes, and this particularly applies to the ladies, um, in order to look good, you have to pay the price a bit. <laughs> and they're willing to put up with some foot ache, etc., for an evening when they go out. And there's not a hell of a lot you can do about that. You know, that sort of bowing to our sort of need to look good and, and, and for cosmetic gratification. There you have it, folks. There is a hefty price you have to pay for looking good. Let's then watch our shoe wear choices and avoid some of these disorders we just learned about. And that's a wrap for our second story this week. I am Masibulele Luniga. Please stay listening. We return after this. This is the Science Inside. So we've had a really interesting and a really insightful and informative show this evening where we looked at a treaty between South Africa and several other countries where they are working on building this new telescope that is going to give us a whole range of benefits from space weather and to even telecommunications. But we also talked about footwear that is specially created to correct food abnormalities and ailments. But that is where we leave it for this week as far as content is concerned. And a big thank you to all of our guests who are featured on tonight's show, including the Department of Science and Technology Director for the Square Kilometer Array, Takalani Nemuangani, and Professor Gavin O'Brien from the Center for Sports Medicine and Orthopedics. Our team behind the scenes, of course, is Masibulele Lunika, and tech is by 
Kutwano Sirame. And our podcast can be found on podcastjournalism.co.za forward slash science. Social media, we are on Facebook as The Science Inside. And you can also tweet us at VAUFM. The Science Inside is produced by the Fitz Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. That is all for this week, folks. Catch us next time at the same time, same place. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on VAUFM 88.1. The Science Inside Podcast.